Appreciate that selection right before the message. Thank you. Let's go to the throne of grace one more time. To still our hearts. Lord, have mercy on us. Christ, have mercy on us. Lord, have mercy on us. Our Father, we want to acknowledge this morning that you have not dealt with us as our sins deserved, but you laid on your Son the penalty that our sins required. You have dealt in grace with us. And this morning we want to express our gratitude for that, but we pray that we might know that more deeply. As Paul prayed for the church at Ephesus, we would pray for us that we would know the breadth and length and height and depth of the love of Christ, that we might be filled up to all your fullness, that you might receive the praise and glory which was the very design of your plan of redemption in the first place. And so we bring this to you. We need help. We know that we live and move and have our being in you. And that were you to withdraw your upholding hand and the Son who holds the universe together by the word of his power and whom all the creation holds together in this moment, we would cease to exist. We need your grace. We need your enlightening, redeeming, forgiving grace from the cross. Show us Christ, we pray. Give us help. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. This morning we return a final time to these first seven chapters of Leviticus, a 15-week series through the book. In some ways, the, the whole book is structured around the first 16 chapters, then the next 11, with the central peak, kind of the Everest, the Day of Atonement in chapter 16. Some look at the entire book and would break it down in five sections. We're not going to spend much on that. This morning we're in chapters 3, largely through the first part of 6. With the peace offering, the sin offering, and the guilt offering. I struggled with how much to task Ivan to read for us this morning. We could have read all seven chapters, but then we'd still be, he'd still be reading and we wouldn't have started the sermon by now, so we didn't do that. In building off of last week, I want us to think about Leviticus as a book, in fact, that's quite, perhaps as full of theology as any book in Scripture, a book that is focused on holiness and our need for atonement to have fellowship with God. And kids, this is something you've heard, but if mom and dad say or ask you what's the most important question for your life, it's this. How am I right with God? And you know how important that is, if I can illustrate this, 
if you've ever disobeyed mom and dad and you've been punished or you have some form, some form of punishment, however that takes place in your house, when it's over and mom and dad have dealt with you and then they take you up in their arms and they kiss you and they hopefully don't say this hurts me more than it hurts you, but they say something like, I love you and I'll always love you and I'm doing this because I love you and now that's behind us. The point is, at that moment, you have been restored in relationship with your parents. And that's the theme of this book of Leviticus. But don't worry over these weeks. We won't do a verse-by-verse exposition. But I want you to remember that this book, and we said this last Sunday night, this book is every bit as part of inspired scripture as Romans or Ephesians, it doesn't matter, the book of Psalms, you fill in the blank. And some of you heard this if you were here last night, but I wanna give it again. This, this book is contributing to, it is filling up and telling us this most sacred and best story of them all, that's the story of redemption. So last week in 200 words, I gave it, I wanna give it again for us in case you weren't here last Sunday night, and that's the story of the gospel. I wanna encourage you to do this. Write out your understanding from scripture of the gospel. Here it is for just a second time. God, 200 words, God in love, and from eternity covenants as the one in three person God to redeem an uncountable multitude from their sin and bring them into an unfathomable relationship with him. The Father electing a people in love before eternity began, but not because of anything he saw in them. The Son accomplishing redemption by the once for all time perfect sacrificial substitutionary offering of himself upon the cross for those elect of the Father. The Spirit sent by the Father and the Son applying the redemption that was planned by the Father, accomplished by the Son, by convicting the elect of their sin, showing them Christ, drawing them by cords of love to the Father, raising them from death to life, bringing them out of the darkness of their rebellion into his glorious light, giving them new hearts, taking out their stony hearts and replacing it with hearts of flesh, writing his law upon their hearts, enlightening their minds, renewing their affections, and subduing their wills in a word, making all things new. This, friends, is the grand story of redemption, and it is worth telling over and over again, worth preaching to every creature and to all creation. And Leviticus contributes to this grand story. It's much more than lots of details about a world that is so unfamiliar to you. It's picturing great spiritual realities that are ours in Christ Jesus. So as we think about Leviticus, and we're heading to think about the peace offering, chapter three, the sin offering from chapter four there till early in chapter five to the end of chapter five, verse 13, and the guilt offering. As we think about this, what we want to understand is that 
these, these five books of the Pentateuch, Genesis through Deuteronomy, have this great concern, and that is how humanity may come to dwell in the house of God. Surely you haven't forgotten that it was out of that first house, that temple of Eden, that mankind was kicked out upon our rebellion. When we allowed the intrusion of rebellion in the form of the serpent, the embodiment of Satan, to come and we as a creature then, in, our first, in that first Adam, participated in raising our fist in rebellion and disobedience to the one who in love made us. But the Lord Jesus, Dr. Michael Morales says, by his coming, he opened a new and living way in this house of God And that was the whole goal of his taking humanity upon himself, of his his suffering, of his resurrection, and of his ascension. So where are we this morning? We're at the third, fourth, and fifth of these five major offerings. That's the whole point of the first seven chapters. Last week, the last couple of weeks, we've looked at the burnt offering and the grain offering. I don't know if you've thought about this, but the burnt offering, the grain offering, the peace offering, in a sense, are three of what we might say in category are burnt offerings. They are wholly burned up. But let's take each of these now, the peace offering, the sin offering, and the guilt offering in turn. You'll notice, and I pointed this out if you were here last Sunday night, that the peace offering is in the middle of these five, but then as you come to chapter six, and from verse eight to the end of seven, what is being given to us is the details on how the priests were to administer, how they were to officiate uh, with these offerings, all right? So from chapter one through six, seven, is the five offerings, but then the details specifically for the priest so they would know what to do from 6, 8, and on. And it's the peace offering that's right in the middle of these five, but then it's reserved last of all. It's how chapter 7 ends. Notice this unique phrase as you look at chapter 3. In verse 1, if his offering is a sacrifice of peace offering. It's the only one of the offerings that actually receives that language, okay? And by virtue of that word sacrifice, we're reminded both of the price of the offering, but also that death was required of the animal brought to the tent of meeting. When you take an offering, let's say you write a check and you stick it in one of these boxes, you don't think of death. But when you see here a sacrifice of peace offering, it reminds you of the price, but it reminds you of the death. And so if an animal was brought, then that animal died, assuming it was acceptable by the standards of the sacrificial system. You see that there. You see that in verse 1, this sacrifice of peace offering. That's only reserved, that, that word sacrifice for the language of the peace offering. And the offerer was to bring his own animal 
and you'll see this pattern, he was to bring his own animal without blemish, which was just another way of saying perfect, no matter from the herd or flock, no matter if cow, lamb, or goat. And there was a spatial relationship for the sacrifice. Look at this. It's a prepositional phrase at the end of verse 1. It's before the Lord. Now, you might think like if you walked up and you stood right there, you would say, I'm standing before the communion table. But there's more denoted, there's more meant here by that. It's like when we say to someone, I told you that before your face. There's significance. That's not just like placing two objects in physical relationship to each other. This is that the sacrifice of peace offering was before the Lord in that it was presented to him as the one who required it and is the one who could effectively receive it for the purpose that it symbolized. But now think about this. In the gospel, though, in contrast to what we see in Leviticus 1 through 7, where the offerer brings an offering which is distinct for their sin, as John Murray says, and we've said this throughout the course of this series, in Christ and in the gospel, the offerer and the offering are one and the same. And so God then in the gospel brings his only son, but not for his sin, but for ours. Think about this. If the person in front of the line, in front of you, like maybe you're, you're at the New Harris Teeter, and they have all these groceries, and you have like two carts, and you know this is going to be like three or $400. And you think, you're, you're like, why did I get in line behind them? I've got so much, right? And they go first. And then they, you finally get through and you scan all your stuff. And then and the clerk says, you don't need to pay for yours. The person in front's already given me, they've, give, they've left their credit card so that when we scan all yours, they're going to take care of it. That's what's happening in the gospel. God brings his only son, but not for his son, for ours. And that offer's hand was laid on the head of the animal, symbolic of transferring guilt to the animal sacrificed. And like the book by Jerry Bridges called The Great Exchange, what's portrayed in this sacrifice is a picture of that ultimate transaction at the cross. It's no more complicated than this. He takes our sin. We receive his righteousness. And in effect, we give nothing and we get everything. And so the death of the Son of God was no ordinary death. His was this transaction planned for by God in the covenant of redemption with love before eternity. This is offered for you. And we can say from the language of Isaiah, it is offered without money, without price to you. And that doesn't mean that there's no price if you come to Christ. And so for some of you that are wrestling, do I want to become a Christian? 
There is a price. In terms of the cost of redemption, God paid that through the cross of his son. But Jesus is very clear. If you will come to Christ, there will be a price. If anyone will come to me, let him be my disciple. Let him what? Take up his cross and follow me. But in terms of the payment for your sin, the Lord Jesus does that if you come and as you come to him. God has paid the price by giving the life of his son. I want us to see as we look at this peace offering, see how the blood of the animal was thrown against the bronze altar. Now, don't think of this bronze altar as like a like a 200 square inch grill. This thing is seven and a half feet by seven and a half feet by four and a half feet tall. It kind of looks like a first rate jacuzzi that you might have at your house if you have one. It's that big. And this blood and that bronze altar outside the tent of meeting but in the courtyard is not just spilt. It's not just sprinkled. Like it's thrown. It's not a pretty sight unless you're conscious of your guilt and you're all too keenly aware of your need for cleansing, for forgiveness, for restoring grace and mercy. And then when you are, what would actually be gross and repulsive to you is beautiful. That bloody scene is more beautiful than you could have ever imagined And that's why the blood was never to be eaten or consumed, just spilled, just touched, dabbed, like either sprinkled before the veil or touched on the horns of the the altar of incense or on that one day of atonement, as we'll see in chapter 16, brought into the most holy of holies. The writer of the book of Hebrews is plain. He says this, indeed, Under the law, almost everything is what? It is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Some of you know that song, there's power in the blood, right? There's power in the blood. Would you be clean and have a clean conscience before God? You ought to. I hope you want that. Paul says, in fact, the summary of his whole ministry there in 1 Timothy 1.5 is this. The goal of our charge is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Well, where do you find that clean conscience? Like that song says, there's power in the blood of the land. It's found there. It's represented there. It's pictured there in the sacrifice of peace offering that ends with a statute about both fat and blood. Look at verse 17 or in the end of 16. The fat is the Lord's. All right. It says, all fat is the Lord's. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwelling places that you eat neither fat nor blood. The fat is the Lord's in the very essence of the pleasing aroma from the burnt offering. This is every time you see that expression about the pleasing aroma to the Lord, that's the aroma from that fat there on the grill of the bronze altar. 
I want us to see now the sin offering. Look at chapter 4. This goes all the way to chapter 5 and verse 13. And for some reason, this has the most lengthy treatment of all the five major offerings. I wondered, why might that be? Would it be because sin is so prevalent or because of the contingency of situations where sin occurs? There is a sense in which you have to read and reread the book of Leviticus to see this. It's kind of looking, if you've ever been to the Grand Canyon, you can look at it from the south rim in midday when the sun is on the north face. Or you can be on the north rim. It's very interesting to see how as the sun rises and sets, how you notice textures and colors and hues and shapes and kind of patterns upon every successive visit to the Grand Canyon. I think it's the way with the book of Leviticus. And so the sin offering is lengthy. There's many contingent situations where sin occurs. You know what James says in James chapter 3. He gives a warning that not many of us should be teachers. And it's very interesting. He offers this as his explanation. He says, for we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. And the details around the sin offering remind us just how common and pervasive sin is in our world even in our lives and even in the church. You'll notice there's a whole section in verse 13 about if the whole congregation of Israel sins unintentionally. As in categories, there's like communal, corporate sin versus individual. And the details here remind us that it's just very common. And the point as we look at this section on the sin offerings Sin brings culpability, it brings guilt. And that guilt must be removed, and it's only removed through an acceptable offering. Who is pictured in all these offerings? It's the Lord Jesus. He is perfect, he is acceptable, he is that once for all time offering for sin, that every sacrificial offering, the burnt, the grain, the peace, the sin and the guilt, point two. They're all but subtle shadows. They all give but the slightest fragrance. They give but the most preliminary sketch of the one in whom all the fullness of God's redemptive purpose is realized, the Lord Jesus. And so as you read these words, look at this here In verse 1, if anyone sins unintentionally in any of the Lord's commandments, or when a leader sins doing unintentionally any one of all the things that by the commandments of the Lord, this is verse 23, verse 23, when he sins by unintentionally doing, or doing unintentionally, any one of all the things that by the commandments of the Lord, His God ought not to be done, and he realizes his guilt or the sin which he has committed is made known to him. Like someone comes up and says, hey, brother, hey, sister, 
I don't think you meant this, but this is what's happened. These are the contingent situations. And we can note the following. Let me point this out. Number one, sin is common. As James says, we all stumble in many ways. Second, sin is common across every class or group of persons. It's John, John the Apostle, that warns us that if we have this mindset that we don't sin, we are, we are lying to ourselves and the truth's not in us. Now, some of you know what this is like. Not only is sin common, sin is pervasive. Like, there's not anyone in this room that doesn't stumble. If I reviewed the last week, the week of January 1st, I blush to think the thoughts I've had, the words I've said, the things I've done. But sometimes sin may be unintentional. Notice that word, unintentionally, verse 2. Notice that word unintentionally, verse 3. Notice that word unintentionally, verse 22. Notice that word unintentionally, verse 27. Sin may be unintentional. There's a reason David prays in Psalm 19, 14, Lord, acquit me of hidden faults. Have you ever put a shirt on backwards? You ever had that experience? Or worse? Okay. You didn't mean it, right? Kids, you understand this. Sometimes, like, mom and dad confront you about something. You say, I didn't mean it. I had no idea. I never gave it a thought. I didn't know what I was doing. You had no malice of forethought. You didn't mean to break your neighbor's window when you hit the baseball, but you did. And the window is broken no matter whether you intended to break it or not. It still needs replacing. There's still the price. The price to replace a broken window, whether it was intentionally broken or unintentionally broken, I think is, it's the same. You weren't seeking to injure another person when your words, when you spoke those words, but they cut the other person. And the other party was injured. I now conclude that those of us who talk too much have way more opportunity to repent than those of you who are quiet. You may have spoken rashly, thoughtlessly, or foolishly, but there was no ill intent. You acted unintentionally, but a sin offering is still required, you see. It's the answer. For those of you who are like me wondering sometimes, what in the world did I just say? Why was I not thinking? Or if I was thinking, how could I be thinking on such a low level? Do you have those days when you should have these words emblazoned on your shirt? It should be like this, okay? I am an unintentional transgressor. That's on the front side. The good news is the Lord Jesus is the sin offering for you. And so we might give you a new shirt, and on the front of it is a statement about your sin. I didn't mean it. But on the back is a statement about God's intention to save you through the cross of his son. 
You have to say, I didn't mean it, but God says, I did mean it on the back. I did mean to send my son to save you as a sin offering for you. So never stop thinking about the wonder of these words at the end of 2 Corinthians 5. Take them to heart. Put them in your tool bag. You ought to have a bag that says, tools for preaching the gospel to myself. And here it is, 2 Corinthians 5.21. Memorize it. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We did not mean it, but he did. Sometimes we commit unintentional acts, but his redemptive purpose, his redemptive acts, his redemptive commitments, his activity in us by the Spirit through his word are ever intentional for our good. Now, I want to apply this for a moment. You will notice that from 4.1 to 5.13, in multiple classes it will review in a moment. There is provision for a bunch of us unintentional transgressors. What we may take away from that is if God is willing to forgive us of an unintentional transgressions, may he help us be committed to do the same to one another. Yeah, I so appreciated Pastor Jamie's message last Sunday morning on peacekeeping from Hebrews 12, you'll get the second part of that tonight, and you don't get the whole verse unless you come tonight, so I encourage you to be here at five o'clock for that, but we may gift grace, mercy, forgiveness to those who transgress most often, quite often unintentionally against us because God has done so with us. Look at the offerings As you look at this sin offering, look at the different classes that are addressed. There's the anointed priest. When you read there in verse chapter four, verse two, if anyone sins unintentionally, he actually moves from a general statement to a specific application, if it is the anointed priest. And you see, as you see for the priest here, if he sins, whether he realizes what he's done by his sinning, or someone brings it to him, and he has to say, I'm the man like David when confronted, that's me. Yeah, mea culpa, I did it. Like, there's no argument, I'm guilty. Look at the beauty of this. The anointed priest then is to take some of the blood of the bull, verse five, he's to bring it into the tent of meeting. Not simply thrown on the altar outside in the courtyard there in front of the tent of meeting, but he's to step in. This is beautiful. He dips his finger in the blood, verse six, and he sprinkles part of that blood seven times before the Lord in front of the veil of the sanctuary. As you know, the number seven is the number of, protect, of per- perfection in the Bible, right? And then he puts some of that blood on the horns of the altar of fragrant incense. There's that phrase again, before the Lord that's in the tent of the meeting. And then the rest, he comes and he pours out around the bronze altar. Even anointed priests stumble in many ways. 
even they sin unintentionally. Look, there's even not just individual sin, but there's the provision for corporate sin. Verse 13, if the whole congregation of Israel sins unintentionally, and there's this kind of corporate blindness, it says, and the thing is hidden from the eyes of the assembly, and they do something the Lord has commanded ought not to be done, they realize their guilt, and then when the sin which they have committed becomes known, like there's that aha moment that precedes repentance, look what they do. They bring a bull as well. And this is beautiful. In the same way, the priest, the anointed priest, he brings this blood of that bull because of the corporate sin of the assembly. He walks in, he comes, he enters in, and he sprinkles it seven times from his finger there in front of the veil before the Lord, and he puts some more on that altar. And there's all this, right? There's the fat then that's burned up, and then like something right out of the book of Hebrews. This is what the writer of the book of Hebrews is referring to in Hebrews 13, 11. What you see there in chapter four, verse 12, and then you see there in chapter four and verse 20 where everything, or verse 21, the, the, the remnants of this bull, the, the bull, this huge bull, multi-hundreds of pounds has been slain and its blood been sprinkled and daubed on the horns of the altar then then spilled out at the base and and in the two kidneys in the long lobe of the liver and the flat the fat that's all around the guts what we call the guts the entrails it's a bloody scene right it's real it's real and that's burning there and that burning, the fat is the Lord's, and so that aroma is God's. But then the priest, like the real work too, is like taking all that stuff, taking it outside the camp to a clean place, to what's called the ash heap, where all that's been sacrificed previously has also been burned. And they, and, and they, they burn up that whole animal. It's all gone. It's all gone. Just like when he takes our sin. God never saves anyone partially. You want to be saved wholly? You come to the Lord Jesus. There's nothing wasted. It's all used up. The blood sprinkled before the veil. The blood that's daubed on the horns of the, the altar of fragrant incense. The blood that's spilled around the bronze altar right there in, in front of the tent of meeting. Those, those two little kidneys, the long lobe of the litter, that flat, that, that fat. I can hardly imagine this scene, but it's bloody, it's visceral. And then all the rest of that animal, all of it, completely burned up to there's nothing that's ashes. It's like something right out of Psalm 103. This is what he says. About the steadfast love of the Lord that endures forever. He says this. As a father has compassion on his children, what is this God like? How does he respond to our transgressions? He says he puts a distance between it and you that's without measure. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed his transgressions from you. And just like you could hardly find a particle of that bull that's been offered, whether it's for the anointed priest, 
or for the whole congregation of Israel, or for a leader, verse 23, for the common person, just a normal, everyday Joe Christian, if that's you, verse 27, you'd say, hey, I'm a common people. He's gone. He's dealt with us as our sins deserve. Do not gloss over the beauty of these words. Let me show this to you. Look at this carefully in verse 26. And all its fat he shall, be, shall burn on the altar like the fat of the sacrifice of peace offerings. So the priest shall make atonement for him for his sin. And he shall be forgiven. If you want a beautiful look, go on YouTube and look at some videos where men or women forgive someone that has taken the life of their own children. And they express, they confer forgiveness. That's powerful. Don't gloss over these words. And... The priest shall make atonement for him for his sin, and he shall be forgiven. I want you to look at verses 1 through 13 of chapter 5 briefly. There's some specifics now about this. There are three areas that I want you to notice that under this category, if anyone sins in that he hears a public adjuration, that is just when you're compelled to testify, when you're to say what you've seen, when you make an oath to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, and when truth is reasonably expected, you speak it graciously but clearly. And here's the contingent situation in chapter 5. It's that someone is a witness. There's been a call to testify and yet that person is silent, okay? There's a second category in verses two and three, and that is where in this book, whose theme, one word theme would be holiness, and so you have uncleanness and cleanness. Holy, holiness, that's why in chapter, if you get to chapter six, you'll start to see the word, the chapters five and six, the holy thing, most holy, you'll see expressions like that. Holy place, the holy place. You'll start to see this theme rises up in the book of, Le, of Leviticus. And so there's those, there's this idea that of, there are things that ought not to be taught, that are unclean, that ought not to be touched. Animal uncleanness, human uncleanness. And this is all gonna rise up and it's leading to there in chapter 19, that Peter then quotes from in his first letter, I am holy and therefore you are my people, you're to be like me. And that makes sense because that's what we were predestined to be according to Romans 8 and verse 29, that we were to be conformed ultimately in one day to the image of God's dear son. But there's a third category, not only is there a sin offering for those who fail to testify, who fail to rise up and speak the truth when truth needs to be spoken and testified to? Not only is there provision for those 
for uncleanness. But there's a third category, and you find it there in verse 4. So if anyone utters with his lips, this is very interesting. If you look at this. If anyone utters with his lips a rash oath to do evil or to do good, any sort of rash oath that people swear, and it's hidden from him when he comes to know it, it's like this. If you ever thought, if so-and-so does that to me again, I'll kill him. I'll punch him. Have you ever had a thought, something like that, even approximating that? Or you think, I hate that person. There's provision at the cross for you. I don't think I'm so unique if I tell you that I've had those feelings at times. That's a rash oath. That's a rash oath to do evil. It's a rash oath to do good when you run your mouth to make promises and then you don't follow through on what you've promised or offered to do. And we need help. We've all done that. And the point of this is that it's available through the cross. There's a final offering that I want to see briefly, and that's the guilt offering there in chapter 5 and verse 14. You'll notice there is, as you think of guilt, Look, turn with me to 514, if you will, briefly. And what's being equated here to sinning unintentionally in something that's called a holy thing of the Lord is, the, is called a breach of faith. You see that. There's a breach of faith mentioned there, chapter 14, verse 1, or chapter 5, verse 14, and then chapter 6. Verse one, a breach of faith, right? So these first two deal with, the first deals with um, sinning intentionally in an area of the holy things of the Lord. We're not told exactly what that is. The second in verse 17 has to do with doing anything that the Lord forbids that we ought not to be done. And then that realizing our guilt, both cases, realizing our guilt, all right, And then in both cases, offering, making an offering, in the case, uh, one is with a fifth more, 20% more. So there's a penalty associated with that compensation. There's realization, then confession, and then compensation. But look in chapter six. He says, if anyone sins and commits a breach of faith against the Lord by deceiving his neighbor in a matter of deposit or security, or through robbery, or if he's oppressed his neighbor or has found something lost and lied about it, swearing falsely in any of all the things that people do and sin thereby, creating this broad category, if he has sinned and has realized his guilt and will restore what he took by robbery or what he got by oppression or the deposit that was committed to him or the lost thing that he found or anything about which he has sworn falsely, he shall restore it in full and shall add a fifth to it and give it to him to whom it belongs on the day he realizes his guilt. So he makes it right on a human level, but that doesn't negate him bringing an offering to the Lord. All right, you see that in verse six. He shall bring to the priest as his compensation to the Lord a ram without blemish out of the flock, or its equivalent for a guilt offering. And look at this. Look at these words one final time. And the priest 
shall make atonement for him before the Lord. He shall be forgiven for any of the things that one may do and thereby become guilty. And I want to close on this. Three offerings this morning, the peace offering, the sin offering, the guilt offering. The Lord Jesus did not take on human flesh and dwell among us as one full of grace and truth simply to make you feel better and to, to live in the, in the realm of where you could validate your feelings. Does he deal with our affections? Yes. But most significantly here is that our Lord Jesus came as a perfect, acceptable, once for all, substitute sacrificial offering for our sin. We get, we give him our sin, we get his righteousness. This is the good news of the gospel. This is what is pictured here this morning as we've considered the peace offering, the sin offerings. We saw some 2 Corinthians 5.21 and the guilt offering. Turn with me to Colossians and we'll close here. I just want you to see this. Probably the most significant expression of this about our Lord Jesus in chapter 2. We've been told in verse 13 that now in Christ Jesus, though formerly we were separated from God, verse 12, we were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, we were strangers to the covenants of promise, we had no hope, we were without God in the world. But look what Paul says in chapter 2, verse 13. Now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off had been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. He is the perfect, the ultimate fulfillment of the shadow, of the fragrance, of the picture, of the sum of all those offerings, but particularly that peace offering. He himself, Paul says, is our peace. He's made us both, they're speaking of Gentiles and Jews, both one and is broken down in his flesh, the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that in he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. This, this morning, I don't see many persons are you in Christ? This is one body. And so we'll eat together in a few minutes as one body, redeemed by one Lord. That's good news. That's the gospel. And I pray that whether this week you find yourself where on the front side of your shirt you're thinking, I didn't mean it, I, un I did this unintentionally, you'll remember that on the back side, God meant it when he sent his son for the sins of the world and for you. That's good news. Let's 
ground ourselves. Let's fill our hearts with such good news. Amen.